Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, we've already had the introduction to uh, the, the sermon in the sense that uh, from the reading, and if you keep uh, Luke's account open, uh, the, the sermon takes a, a different direction than that I was originally thinking. And in many ways... Um, what I'm saying tonight, there will be continuity, I feel sure, with Keith uh, in the light of the interview and so forth. So, here is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We could legitimately say Jesus and the Holy Scriptures as he takes uh, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and says, Now the Scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Which is a very profound messianic statement to make in and of itself. Well, we cannot live in a perpetual state of spiritual excitement. There are some very sincere Christians and church leaders who believe that we should. I'm saying to you that we shouldn't. We need periods of private and personal preparation, it's often unseen and unknown, the fruits of which come much later. It's a bit like studying for exams, the hard work is before you get into the exams. So when you think about this event, the years of preparation for the Lord Jesus, of which we know so little, now in the power of the Spirit, become evident. These years of preparation and God's Spirit is propelling Jesus into action. And of course, we have the account here of how fickle we as people are, no more than people in the hometown synagogue where Jesus was well known. They make reference to his parents and so forth with a measure of uh, uh, disdain almost. So what I'd like us to do tonight is try to have some, not so much background, but think about our roots. Think about when we come to church, why do we do what we do? 
Why is it that the service takes a particular pattern and form? And is it just that we are Baptists or Protestants or just Evangelicals? Or is there more here? And in the light of what, obviously, uh, Keith was saying, that's an interesting uh, comment. Of all the, f- of the four Gospels, Luke uniquely gives the account of this event in the synagogue. So let's make two comments, first of all. And I think this is worth uh, us reflecting upon in the light of the, if you like, the, church, the atmosphere of the church these days. Number one, there is no contradiction between tradition and the power of the Holy Spirit. There are, again, some people who would say, well, of course, if you can get rid of your traditions, the Spirit will be uh, at liberty to move, and so on. There is no contradiction between tradition and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you have it in verse 16, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, And he stood up to read in the power of the Spirit. But if you take that verse, here is Jesus, a regular, can I use that word, churchgoer or Sabbath attender with all of the traditions which had been handed down. And it's worth saying again, and, um, you know, I, I don't... We, we need just to think about this. Um, why do we do what we do? Um, thinking about verse 16 again. Um, he, he went on the Sabbath day into the synagogue as was his custom. You might say religiously. Um, why do we do it? Do, we, do, do you come to church because you feel like coming? Do you come to church because someone's going to say, where were you? It's not a bad thing. Do you come to church out of duty? Do you come to church because you might feel guilty if you don't? Why do you come? I hope that you don't say, I come because I've always come. That's not very helpful. Um, And the writer to the the Hebrews, who are again... um, Hebrew Christians, a bit like the way Keith was talking to us, were becoming discouraged. Turn to the book of Hebrews and see this. And they're beginning to think, well, either they're going back to their traditions or they might think that there's a disconnect. And I know this has been preached on to tell Christians that they should come to church. It's much more than that. It's much more than that. And in Hebrews 10 and uh, verse uh, 24, this series of Uh, mutual exhortation, let us draw near to God. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly the hope we profess. And verse 24, let's consider, now as part of of this worshipping business together, let you and I consider how we may spur one another on to love and to good deeds. You do that so that you do not give up meeting together some in the habit of doing. Now you need to put it in its context. That one thing about coming together like this, there is a mutuality in the power of the Spirit where we provoke one another to be more Christ-like, iron sharpening iron. And just the second thing by way of introduction is this, that public worship and the power of the Spirit are actually inseparable. 
Now, I'm not saying that you, you can only know the power of the Spirit at public worship. I'm not saying that. But I am essentially saying, and look, let's come back to Luke 4 and uh, verse uh, 14 and 15. In this context here, Jesus returned to Galilee, there it is, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in the synagogues and everyone praised him. So here is Jesus in the context of traditional worship in the power of the Spirit and God's word beginning to impact the people of his day. So, at this point, we need to pause and um, I'd ask to have, uh, uh, Ozzy, please, the, the definition of worship, which it is rather uh, fairly comprehensive. Uh, this is by the Archbishop William Temple, and a very, very good definition. I, have n I know of none that is, so, is, is as comprehensive and at the same time concise in terms of how to explain what we are doing when we come together. So, I'll read it and you can read it and look at it at your own pace. What are we doing? Well, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness. It is the nourishment of mind with His truth. The purifying of the imagination by His beauty. The opening of the heart by his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, and all this is gathered up in adoration to the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is the original sin and the source of actual sin. Our greatest problem is ourselves, our innate sinfulness. So here is worship that really in the spirit attacks the self-life. And, and, and there's a shift to say, this is actually about Jesus. And I love him. And I want to come in worship and serve him. And hopefully, collective worship contributes to that glorious end. And if you want a printout of that, um, I'd be glad to provide it. It's one that you would, you would do well to sit down and meditate and think and reflect about what we are doing. Well, all of this comes to my mind because of this event uh, of Jesus in the synagogue. So, can we, I'd like to say three things then as to what we are doing. Number one, worship is the first and greatest command. And uh, Keith has, has read that to us. It's the one that I always give at dedications, always, always, when parents in a symbolic form say, God, you have given me this child. I give him, her, back to you. It's not mine. It's this, ch this child you have given to me. I give him, her, back to you. And what is it? 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. This is not a peripheral, superficial thing, but profound and an integral part of everyday life as long as whether you outlive your children or your children you. Worship is the first and greatest command. Are you a true worshipper of God in this covenant? Well, those are the things that would occupy Jesus' mind very much. Secondly, worship is the first response of a living faith. Of a living faith. Uh, let's just turn to uh, 1 Peter, just to see this um, as it's uh, uh, expressed. 1 Peter chapter 2. Just have a look at this. And uh, verse 4 and 5. It's page 1218 in the church Bibles. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then there's a quotation from uh, the Old Testament. We are a kingdom of priests, a spiritual, holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. So, let's just think about this for a moment. How, does that, how is that worked out? Well, worship is not about instruments. But I tell you this, the, tonight uh, it was just lovely. The, all the musicians, morning and evening, I hear at least three quarters of an hour before the service starts. They go through every song and so forth prayerfully, pray before each time. We are blessed and, the, and, and our musicians enrich our worship immeasurably. However, worship is not about instruments. It's not about guitars versus the piano drums as opposed to the organ, tambourines as opposed to the flute, hymns as opposed to choruses, ancient as opposed to modern, standing up, kneeling down, keeping your hands in your pockets or raising them in the air. It's not about that. Of course, that is part of the expression. But essentially, a thing of the heart and of life and of mind and of emotion. We should actually say, now that the service is over, let's go out into this week and worship God. Thirdly, worship is the first sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, obviously, this is the, the classic verse, isn't it? Turn to Ephesians, just to see this. Ephesians 5. And again, this gives us a little window now, not so much into the synagogue, but perhaps into a worshipping community. The, the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 5, page 1176. And uh, verse 18. Well, this is familiar to most of us, I, I, I'm sure. 
Look, think of this worship. Here we are tonight. And here it is. Well, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And this Spirit-fullness, speak to one another. And speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as you worship him. I wonder how much uh, we do of that. Well, a lot of it. And, I, and, and I'm not... Raising these points that we don't do it. It's just these are the, the, the if you like, the, the parameters in which we, we function. So, in a way, we could say, as an extension to this, there are three kinds of praise in song. There's the first, which is the Jewish Psalter, the Book of Psalms, a great resource. I know one church, the church actually that Neil was linked to before coming here, that are systematically, every Sunday, singing through the Book of Psalms. Now, the, the point is, some psalms are a dirge, because they should be. Some are a lament, because people have things to grieve about. Some are confessional. There are sins that need to be dealt with. And some are celebratory. And, and they bring together the whole spectrum of human experience. So that's the first, the Psalter. The second is Christian hymns. Don't we give thanks to God well, they'd be my heroes, John and Charles Wesley. They, they've so blessed the church, and I'm not surprised those hymns have survived so well. But what's the third? Well, the third is more personal, and that's what you have in Ephesians 5.18. It's, it's what you can call relational worship. We relate to each other in psalm, in song, in spiritual expressions musically and I guess we've got a lot to learn about that if you, give, if you were to read the accounts of great awakenings in the history of the church that you will find these characteristics so worship then essentially has at the very least two fundamental characteristics the first and foremost we adore and we bless and we praise God. That's what the point that Keith was making, which was a prelude in that situation to coming to faith. That is first and foremost. We are here to adore him, to love him, to praise him. But secondly, as part, and this is a characteristic of spirit-filled, authentic worship, we are here to affirm and benefit one another. I come to receive a blessing, but I come to be one as well. I come to be one. And because, I suppose, of the cumulative effect of the tradition, the way that we do things, we can lose sight on that. So, if you like, my concern in worship should be this. 
How can I enjoy the Lord? The chief end of man is to glorify him and to enjoy him. Do I give the impression that actually I endure him, that he's a hard taskmaster? In my worship, I am here to enjoy him. How would I feel if I could never come here again? I really, really enjoy him. He's my father. And I love him. He sent his son, who's my savior. And he's given his spirit to help me. How can we enjoy God more than perhaps it ought to be? But secondly, how can I encourage others? It's the other side of the coin, isn't it? How can I enjoy God? How can I encourage my fellow brother and sister? Too much of worship is often egocentric. Now, of course, we have legitimate needs, and it's not wrong. So the New Testament becomes a book of joy. The, the verb to, to rejoice occurs 72 times, and the noun joy 66 times. And much of that in the, in, in the context of a corporate community of people who live and worship and serve together. So let's try to round this off, have some sort of... Uh, of uh, some conclusions and if it isn't obvious already now all of this I'm saying has, would, would come out of this interesting uh, event uh, in our Lord's life and speaking to Keith just now with that interview that's given us perhaps just a, a little insight so let's come back as we conclude to Luke chapter 4 and just to see this Luke chapter, Luke chapter 4 our, the, the reading that we had and verse 14 to 21. And we could make uh, four brief observations. I promise you they are. Number one. Whatever way we do it, whatever your personal preference is, and if it's, uh, you know, some, uh, some like the more liturgic, more formal, some prefer the more spontaneous, some love new songs. Others are the complete opposite. Most of those comments are done at the church door, which is often can be a dangerous place as well as an interesting place to be because people are expressing a legitimate uh, perspective. Four observations. Number one, worship is to glorify God. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. We glorify God by sharing this good news with people like that. Secondly, worship should have structure and spontaneity. The, 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 the problem is oftentimes in maybe your church experience, whatever your background, and here tonight there's a, a fair wide spectrum of how, how we do church. That's the term that's used. Um, 
some are so structured that it's almost a straitjacket. And others are so spontaneous that anything goes. Well, the point is, surely we should have both. And how do you do that? So, in verses 16 to 17, for instance, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it or referring to it. So it may be Jesus' choice, not just the set reading. He found the place that is written. And interestingly, in verse 20, he sat down. That's what they did. They sat down to speak, not stand up. I came across this interesting quote of Charles Spurgeon, and it, and it wasn't in a sermon, it was to his lectures to his students. And he was rather um, concerned about the sort of uh, young people who were coming forward. They, they were overly serious and rather um, miserable, particularly when they went into the pulpit. And he said this, this wasn't in a sermon now, this was to his students. An individual who has no geniality about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead. For he will never succeed in influencing the living. Well, there you are. Even in a very straight-laced, uh, I was going to say Dickensian society, not quite, but... Um, you have to be yourself. And sometimes with the layers of church life, we unconsciously conform. Thirdly, worship should bring people to faith. And we should pray for our young people and our children at the very earliest age that exposing their hearts and minds to worship, that it will open their hearts to know and have a, an encounter with God in the way that Keith was saying to us. To bring people to a living faith. And you have it in verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or this, so to say to our children and to our grandchildren, don't you know, this is the year of grace. This is the year of God's favor. Our worship should do that. And finally, worship should challenge complacency. So easy, isn't it, to come, I know I've done it, to go into sort of automatic mode or automatic pilot, switch on, switch off, think about what we're going to do next week, and then sing the final hymn. Our worship should challenge complacency. And I'm going to just take one verse from what will be Keith's uh, sermon next uh, Sunday, and it's verse 28. And it's this, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Why? Not only because of what Jesus said, but because of his application, that he was actually speaking to them, not these Gentile dogs whom they didn't like. And sometimes we can be like that rather churchy and religious. 
Now, of course, no one wants to go into the pulpit to offend people. That, we're not saying that. But our worship should challenge complacency. So we can say, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because he has anointed me to preach, to speak, to share good news to the poor. Sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. You don't have to go very far in church to have oppressed people who need to be released to proclaim the year of grace. The year of grace, God's favor, God's bountiful, unmerited grace.